It was January 12, 2007. In Washington, D.C., during the morning rush hour commute, that a musician walked over to La Lafont subway station. And he walked, like many musicians do, over to the side wall, brought out his violin case, took out his violin, and then put the open case on the floor in front of him so that passerbys would toss money in the case if they wanted to. Hustle and bustle marked the subway station that morning. Nearby shoeshine stands were bustling, people standing in long lines to get their lotto numbers. And yet what seemed to go unnoticed on this morning was that the man playing the violin was Joshua Bell, one of the world's greatest living violinists. Joshua Bell was a child prodigy at the age of four. His dad would walk into his room and see him having strung rubber bands between dresser drawers, and he was plucking out sounds of musical masterpieces, and he would push the drawers in at different uh, angles to get different noises on the bands. A few days before this January 12th morning, Joshua Bell was at the Boston Symphony Hall, where if you were to be in attendance, the cheap tickets would have been a little over $100. A few weeks after, he would be at another concert hall in which it would be standing room only, and people would do everything they could to stifle any noises so as to not miss out on the musical genius that was before them. And yet on this day, in the middle of the subway station, he was going largely unnoticed. In addition to who was playing this violin, the violin that he was playing was a 300-year-old Stradivarius, valued at $3.5 million. In addition to the violin and the violinist on this day, he played a piece of music by Sebastian Bach commonly regarded as one of the most difficult violin pieces to master. Bell himself would say that he would see this as the greatest piece of music ever written, and one of the greatest achievements in human history is to be able to play this piece flawlessly. So why did he do this? Well, it was a social experiment put on by the Washington Post, and if this story has struck the inner violinist chord within you, I would encourage you to go online and read this article, fascinating article, well written. But the question they were wondering is what would happen if you took the best violinist on the best violin playing the best piece of music in a subway station, would people even notice? Would there be a huge crowd of people that would stop and choke the morning commute? And what they found is hardly anyone noticed. There was a guy who was passing by who had an interest in concert Music, he stopped and listened. There was another lady who passed by and recognized Joshua Bell as the guy whom she had paid a lot of money to go see a few weeks before. The reporters said that, the, said that little kids would stop and would want to listen to the music. The ease with which we can miss greatness in our midst. And that's one of the reasons that we pause during our regular rhythms of walking through books of the Bible to have an Advent sermon series. And this Advent sermon series is meant to encourage us to slow down and to refocus and to remember and to rejoice and to celebrate a similarly incognito arrival of the promised one of God, the greatest being ever, who would come to this world in our midst and no one hardly noticed. God himself would come to earth in the form of a baby named Jesus. And so I'm thankful that you are here this morning. We're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled Songs of Christmas. We've gone back to the months leading up to that first Christmas. We've just wanted to put our ear towards the wind 
And to hear the sounds, to hear the singing, to hear the songs that were being belted out around that first Christmas. And we said over the last two weeks that it's as if Mary and Zechariah have turned sort of from everything that was happening and are facing us some 2,000 years later. And we get to hear their hearts erupt with praise for this coming Messiah. Next week, we will hear from another human voice on the other side of the birth of Jesus. But this morning, we won't hear from human voices. We will hear from angelic voices. We will hear from the voices of heaven as we hear these angels declare and sing. It's as if the concert of heaven has gone on tour and it showed up to earth. And we're given a glimpse into the praise of the angels surrounding this one who would be lying in a manger. This song, like each of the songs that we're covering in this series, they stand to remind us that on this day there was a treasuring that was happening. There was a prizing of this promised one that was happening. And that's the invitation. The invitation is, as you and I hear these songs week in and week out, It's not just that we recognize that they were praising God, but that we would be invited into the same praise to the same God. And so there is a song to sing. Even in 2020, there is a song to sing, no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what lies ahead. And we are served when we listen to these songs, not just to understand what's being sung, but to understand why. Why is it that they erupt in praise? Why is it that they sing? And so let's pray. Just let's pray for grace that we wouldn't miss understanding why and that we wouldn't miss the invitation to join these heavenly voices in giving our praise to this unparalleled gift of God. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded not only of your worth and not only of your holiness, I'm reminded of your kindness. And we thank you that that's clearly seen in and through Christ. And so I pray that as we tune our hearts to hear the songs of the angels, God, that that same tuning would be readying our hearts to sing to you. Help us. Help us from being overly familiar and thus unmoved by this story. You did not send Christ to lessen our pleasures. No, you sent him so that they would increase. And so would you expand not just our minds to understand, but would you expand our hearts to feel and to receive and to respond? You alone are worthy. The angels will declare this. And I pray that would be the song on our lips. And so would you allow that the the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached. And would you accomplish your purposes through our time together? Yes and amen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use uh, any of the Bibles before you. If you pick up the New American Standard Bible, I didn't get the page number. I'm sure it's really close to whatever the page number was last week. Uh, New American Standard, Luke chapter 2, 2 would be the large number, the smaller numbers will be the verses, and we will be in verses 8 through 14. And as you're turning there, it would be helpful just to establish a little bit of context to understand what's going on. If you were to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you would encounter a load of historical details. You would hear names like Caesar Augustus. You would hear places like Syria. You would hear... Joseph and Galilee and and Nazareth and Bethlehem and Mary. You would hear Kyrenos and you would uh, listen to all of these details. And Luke is reminding us as we're reading this that what he's dealing with is real history. This is the account of real history happening in a real place in real time with real people. This isn't fictional. And in fact, not only is it history that's unfolding, 
But some 700 years earlier, there is specific prophecies that would go forth. For example, Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is what Micah prophesied about this coming Messiah. He says, but, you, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago for the days of eternity. And so what we realize is that Micah promised that this coming one was going to be born from this small little forgotten, overlooked village town called Bethlehem. And you begin to think, wait a minute, Joseph and Mary, they're in Nazareth. If the Messiah is going to come and it's going to be Jesus like the rest of the Bible says that it is, how in the world are we going to get this Nazareth-dwelling family over into Bethlehem so that, so that the prophecies would be fulfilled? Answer, through the decrees of Caesar Augustus. Some 90 miles away, Caesar Augustus would order a census be taken that would pull people back to their hometowns. And so you begin to go, wait a minute. So even through an ungodly king and ruler, God is still so winding the channels of his purposes throughout histories so as to accomplish them all, even through the means that are most unlikely and most unexpected. Just as a secondary application, it would be helpful for us to remember. And I pray, I've been praying this week, God, would you give us faith, even just in seeing how you used pagan, unspiritual people to accomplish your purposes, I pray that you would give us the faith to see that you really do work all things out for your purposes and your plans. And he even uses the ungodly, those that are in power to fulfill what he has promised. And so this is true of all people. Right? This is true of all humanity. God's plans cannot be stopped by bad leaders. God's plans cannot be stopped because of sinful behaviors. No, leaders aren't that powerful. And sin doesn't go farther than the reach and the power and the might of God. And so this is helpful for us to remember this season, especially as we think about the year that we had and we just think, man, maybe 2020 has spun out a little too far and a little too out of reach for God to kind of keep it all together. And we're reminded, no, he uses the most unlikely of people, even the most unlikely of circumstances to bring about his purposes and to accomplish his plans. But there's a, there's a particular note of truth in here for Christians for those who have been willing to turn from their sin and to place their faith and their trust and to live as though the only thing that matters is that he is who he says he is and he has done what he says he has done. And so for my Christian brothers and sisters, in light of this, I just want to encourage you. Perhaps 2020, you've been raising your fist at God in protest for what has happened. Perhaps forgetting and perhaps even thinking that maybe he has forgotten you. I pray that instead of raising your fist, that the Lord would use Luke chapter 2 to encourage you to raise your hands in praise, not fist in protest. Thanking God that even when life takes turns that we least expect, or things that we wouldn't plan for ourselves, that even those hard things... I mean, a pregnant woman, like very pregnant woman, 90 miles journey, no, no family is signing up for that. No nine-month pregnant woman is signing up for that on the back of a donkey. God takes those hard things and are using them for his glory and for our good. And then we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that we have the most important birth ever explained in what seems to be the most plain and simplest of ways. It's interesting, that, uh, it's interesting to think about what's not recorded here. I mean, you would think this once in a forever birth. Luke, how are you going to tell us? You're the most detailed 
gospel writer. And he just, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke spends his time not talking about the details of the birth, but talking about the heavenly response to this birth. And verse 8 introduces us to this group of unnamed shepherds. And suffice it to say that these guys were simply not prepared for what was about to happen on this night. Near the bottom of the ladder, they were uneducated, they were unskilled, they were seen as dishonest, they were unable to testify in court, they were consistently ceremonially unclean, they were, a- they were unable to comply with temple regulations. And so it's pretty staggering that on this night, verse 9 tells us, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, the shepherds. What, this is sort of the divine record scratch, and did they read the wrong address, right? Did, uh, somewhere between wherever they were at and where they were trying to go, they took a, a hard left and ended up in a field with a bunch of ungodly men. Surely this couldn't have been the plan. But it's not just an angel who appears to them, verse 9 tells us. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And of course, understatement, and they were terribly frightened. All throughout the Bible, God's glory is seen. It's manifested in brilliant light. God's glory manifested itself to his people in the wilderness. As they were walking, his glory would would, uh, emanate where it was that they were to go. At the dedication of the tabernacle, God's glory would come and dwell, and it was this radiant light. And then after centuries of sin and rebellion, there's this this sobering moment in uh, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 9, 10, and 11, and what we find is that the glory of God leaves the temple. The, the, The glory of God withdraws from his people. And the glory of God would not appear visibly, manifest form, until this night where it signified that God's presence had once again entered the world. And this time it came through the birth of Jesus. These shepherds are understandably filled with fear. It was both unexpected and terrifying as the heavens lit up with the unique brilliance of the glory of God. And then, not only only are there are they visually captivated by the angel and then by the, the, the radiant light of God's glory that shone all around them? But then the angel speaks. And so before we hear the angel sing, verses 13 and 14, we get to listen to this one angel preach. He preaches. And it's here that we learn why the angels erupt in joyful song on this night. And so we'll consider two points this morning, two reasons that the angels sing on this night, and we'll see one of those reasons really in what the angel preaches, which will then lead to a response of singing. And so the angels sing. They sing because God's good news has broken through, and it's declared, number one, that salvation has come. Salvation has come. Just listen again. Verses 10 through 12. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. And lying in a manger. Angels almost always, when they appear, say, do not be afraid. I, how in the world would this angel expect anything different? Right? I will never forget one of the most frightening moments. So I was growing up, 
I had just learned a lot of new words that I was not supposed to speak. They were bad words. And I can remember the first time being with my friends and just sort of saying some of those words out loud and feeling like I'm something only to realize that my mom overheard. And just like, oh, no. My first thought was, please don't tell dad. But just that moment of going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I've just been caught. I can imagine these, angel, uh, these shepherds doing who knows what, knowing the kind of dishonest lifestyles they were living. I can imagine angels showing up and feeling that they, have, they would expect to, they would expect nothing less than to be fearful before the angel. Why in the world would this angel say, do not be afraid? Well, he would say, do not be afraid, not to give them confidence in how they have been living. He would say, do not be afraid. Why? Because I came to deliver you a message, good news of great joy. You don't fear because of what I'm about to proclaim. This angel had just given, just removed the reasons to fear. And this angel gave every reason to rejoice. Commentator Daryl Box says, humanity has nothing to fear when God moves towards us in grace. And we have everything to fear if he does not move towards us in grace. There is a needed news, good news about an unmatched joy, great joy that will be for all the people. And this unrivaled miracle happens quietly in a stable in an obscure village announced to shady and despised people. And the angel says, this isn't just a message for shepherds. He says, good news, great joy, which will be for all the people. God, in his kindness, would allow us to take up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering on this day where we are reminded through this heavenly sermon that God's glory is global. And the invitation for salvation is for all peoples. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for those whom he first entered into covenant with in the Old Testament. And so you begin to think about it. Well, wait, why in the world did the shepherds get this announcement if it's for all the people? Because there is probably no group of people like the shepherds that would best represent all the people. If there was hope for the shepherds, there's hope for us. If there was hope for the shepherds, there would be hope for the royal. If we were writing this, we would have had the angel come to the palace and to begin with the influential. But guess what every shepherd would have been thinking? It's not a message for me. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking that the Christmas story is not a message for you, hear the heavenly sermon declare. No matter what earthly sermon you have heard, hear the heavenly sermon declare. This good news, great joy for all the people. This news isn't only for those that are put together. This isn't only for the strong ones. This isn't only for those that were the same ethnicities as the shepherds or as Mary and Joseph. No, no, no. This is for all ethnicities, all nationalities, all peoples from all time in all places. Friends, that means that this sermon has much bearing on you this morning. This message of good news, great joy is for you. It's for you. And, and, and it's, a, it's a most unusual birth announcement. Uh, birth announcement. Most birth announcements read... Born to Mr. and Mrs. Perry, a child. <laughs> they would read a child born to... Miss, I don't even know what a birth announcement uh, is anymore. <laughs> but if you do them, normally it says, this child was born to these parents. And it's interesting, this birth announcement doesn't say anything about Mary and Joseph. No, this is a birth announcement 
that's for, that's unto you. And so the invitation of this heavenly sermon and the invitation of this earthly sermon, don't confuse the two, is that this good news of great joy can become yours. You can believe on this. You can place your faith in this. And this will change your life. The angelic preacher makes eye contact with each of us this morning. And you know what he says in this sermon? He says in this sermon that this good news for great joy, it's for you. It's for you. This sermon is for you. This good news, it's for you. Lift your head, this this sermon. Great joy, good news, it's for you. It's for you, and it's for you, and it's for you. It's for you. The angels sing because God's good news has broken through, declaring this is for you. And what's unique in this angelic sermon is that for the first time and the only time in the Bible, we have this threefold reference in one place that this one who would be born, verse 11, is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Three designations of Jesus used together. Savior, I'm helped by what Pastor H.B. Charles says. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been to be more pleased, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation. So God in great mercy sent a Savior. This is what the angel said to Joseph, right? Remember when the angel appears to Joseph, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? And she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Paul captures this in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Why did this baby come born under the law? Why? So that he might redeem those who are under the law. And so let's be clear. This Savior is not the Savior who merely comes to save you from unfulfillment in your job. He's not here to save you only from unfulfillment in your marriage or your family or your stage of life or your friendships or habits that you can't kick. No, he came to save you from the one problem that you have zero power and zero even desire to change and to save you from. R.C. Sproul put it this way, what every human being needs is to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world an unrepentant sinner, a sinner who's willing to go to his grave in his sin. The last thing in the world an unrepentant sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. And so in great mercy, we have a Savior who has come to save us from God. To save us from a holy God who will judge justly and perfectly sin. And this announcement is about God's intention to save because this is why this baby was born. If we don't understand the cross in light of the manger, the manger will not make sense in the way that it's supposed. The one who is most offended by our sin makes his way to us in grace. I mean, just think of the merciful gift this is. The one whom you have most offended by your sin is the one who moves towards you in grace to forgive you of your sin. He provides a way for us to be forgiven of our sin by sending his son. Friends, that's why this message is indeed good news of great joy. 
That's why the song got it wrong when it said it was a silent night. No, the angels are about to get loud because of this good news of great joy. And loud seems to be the appropriate response because we are talking about good news of great joy. Not only is he the Savior, but he's the Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one. Kings would be anointed to rule. Prophets would be anointed to speak. Priests would be anointed to make intercession between God and his people. All of this, the word Christ is really, if you were to go back and look at the, in, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, you would find that everywhere that you read the word Messiah, that's translated in the Greek as Christ. It means that there was a long-awaited Messiah in the Old Testament. The New Testament says that long-awaited Messiah is now here in Christ. And the long-awaited promised coming one, Messiah from God, is coming to forgive and gather God's people together. He's in the high office of king. His kingdom will never end. He is a perfect prophet speaking only truth about who he is, knowing all things. And he's the perfect priest making intercession between God and man. He's coming to give the people of God a new heart of flesh by removing their heart of stone. And so this one in the manger is the Savior, and he's the Christ, and maybe even most astoundingly, he's the Lord. He's the Lord. When this is used in reference to Jesus, it's conveying the weight of the Old Testament word Yahweh the covenant name of God to his people, Yahweh. The one who initiated and established and sustains covenant and relationship with his people. And so what, what this angel is declaring is that this isn't just a savior who has come. This isn't just the long-awaited promised Messiah who has come. This is God himself who has come. He's the Lord. God has arrived in the flesh. Why? Because only God can forgive sin done against God. And he comes ready to remedy our predicament. And all that prediction sounds good. But what would these shepherds, and consequently everyone else, how would they know that this Savior Christ Lord has indeed come? Well, verse 12 tells us the angel just doesn't declare that this is a day in which good news of great joy comes. The angel then gives directions for where they can find him. And we won't look at it this morning, but what we will find from verses 15 through 20 is that they head off and they do indeed find this one wrapped in cloth lying in a manger. And they erupt, and they treasure, and they prize this Christ. Go to the stable. Yes, the one with all the traveler's animals, and you will find this Christ. You will find this Savior, and you will find this Lord. Shepherds, you won't be able to miss him. And as if there were any more reasons for an eruption of praise and joyous singing, we're given more. And so the sermon has come to a close, and now it's time for the song to erupt. And what we hear in verses 13 and 14 is not just this one angel doing a solo act. No, multitude of angels join in, leading us to our second why are they singing number one because salvation has come why are they singing number two because God gets glory and God's people get peace God gets glory and God's people get peace you see this in verses 13 and 14 listen again and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
After giving the directions to where they would find this baby, suddenly, I mean, again, these are frightened shepherds. One angel, glory of the Lord, shone around them. Suddenly, a host. Suddenly, a multitude. That means too many to number. And all throughout kind of common Greek writing, that would, that would capture a couple hundred, a couple thousand, even in some secular writings, millions, millions. And so these frightened shepherds, one angel, glory of God shone all around them, all of a sudden are overwhelmed in every sense of the word by a host, by potentially hundreds, thousands, millions of angels. And they further announce this gracious disposition of God towards sinners who deserve his wrath. And they appear praising and saying, if you put those two things together, I think that means singing. What do they say? And what do they sing? Glory to God alone and peace to those with whom he is well pleased. After this angelic announcement and sermon, heaven explodes into angelic praise. Glory to God in the highest. Highest isn't talking about altitude. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no one above him. Highest is talking about the highest realm of order and being. He's deserving of it all. It all flows up to him. The glory of God is often misunderstood. The glory of God is weighty, not because of pounds. You can't take the glory of God and sort of package it up and see it weighs a lot, and so therefore it's weighty. No, no, no. It's weighty because of its significance. Glory is a biblical word that's used to capture absolute and unrivaled significance of God beyond everything else. It's as if the human language has stretched so far. We, we just don't even have categories or words anymore to say anything other than glory. His infinite perfections, his unspeakable beauty. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 will say, he is the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so to say that God is glorious is to say that he is of supreme worth. So these angels are looking in and they're inviting us to consider the worth, consider the glory of this God who has come to undeserving sinners and announced a message, good news of great joy. His glory, his worth, he's not just perfect in one way, he's perfect in all ways. And he's perfect in all ways at all the same time. He's the king of glory. He's the God of glory. He's the very source of being and reality himself. Everything begins with God. And everything depends on something else except God. Being holy, he always does what is right and just. He's not weak. He's not limited. He's not finite. He's absolutely in control at all times and over all things. He's all-knowing. And because he's all-knowing, he's all-wisdom, he's all-reason, he's all-intellect. All of it is sourced in him. This is the God who puts on flesh and becomes a baby. Jonathan Edwards would say, All other things in regards to worthiness is nothing in comparison to him. True life, true purpose, true satisfaction found in him alone. He is the prize that our hearts prize. He's the treasure that our hearts long to find. He is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And here's the thing. We will never plumb the depths of the ocean of his unsearchable riches. And so when the angels declare... Glory to God in the highest. That's not just a cute Christmas song. No, that is a declaration from eternity past that's meant to extend into eternity future saying yes and amen. It's all owing to you because you alone are worthy. 
because of his wisdom, in creating a story like this that, ex- that, ex- that expands years and years and years. He gets the glory because of this plan of redemption. He gets the glory because of his goodness to save undeserving sinners from the wrath of God. He gets the glory because he didn't send a messenger to come to us. No, he came to us. He gets the glory because he came in humility through ordinary, unknown, a faithful, engaged Jewish couple. He gets the glory because he came to give a, his life as a ransom. He gets the glory because his death once means our life forever. He didn't have to come. He wasn't provoked to come because we were pretty good and he needed us on his team. No, he came out of his own self-compelled compassion and commitment to his own glory. And so these angels are singing because God has unleashed an eternal kingdom in the most unlikely of places through the womb of a virgin, now having given birth, lying in an animal's haven, the stable. All this good news leads us to give God all the glory. This Christmas season, I wonder who is getting the glory in your life. We're all wired for glory. And so the fact that you long for glory isn't a bad thing. The sin and the bad thing happens when you seek to pursue self-glory. And the angel's sermon and the angel's song reminds us that, no, 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 it's to him alone. All glory belongs. And so, friends, lay down whatever pursuits, lay down whatever facades, lay down whatever reputation you're trying to uphold Because at the end of the day, it's not your glory that you want to go to your grave holding on to. It's his. But it's not just glory to God in the highest. The rest of the song is and peace on earth with those whom he is well pleased. Peace is mentioned 375 times in the Bible. And oftentimes we think, okay, it means no conflict. But the Bible speaks of peace not only as absence of conflict, but also as promoting vitality and life and wholeness and flourishing. And so peace points to, again, not only absence of conflict, peace points to the fullness of blessings that Christ brings. This is why Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, Isaiah speaking some 700 years prior, makes the statement what? He will be called the prince of peace. Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus will say to his followers, my peace I give to you. That peace is really kind of a a three-dimensional. It's peace with God, it's peace with yourself, and it's peace with others. If Christ came to bring peace, what does that imply about our natural condition with God? It means that we're not at peace. That's why the Savior has come, to bring peace in the place of war. Paul talks about this, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we we shall now be saved by his life. And so just this idea that we are not friends with God, we are enemies with God. And left to ourselves, we are without hope and we are without help. And so our greatest need, your greatest need this morning It's not peace relationally. It's not inward peace. Your greatest need is peace with God. Which is why Christmas then just ushers in good news because it is possible. The very thing that you can't get on your own is possible because of this one who has come. How do we get it? Well, it's interesting. Most of us, especially if we've grown up watching Charlie Brown, and or memorizing the KJV of Luke chapter 2. We are familiar with glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And most modern translators and almost all scholars will agree that that's not the best translation. But the idea that's captured in the ESV and the NIV and the NASB and the CSB is this an on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased, with those upon whom his favor rests. 
the angels show up singing a song that isn't just about generic peace. There's a specific peace for a specific people who are willing to be reconciled with a specific God. And how can you do that? Through a specific Savior, Jesus the Christ. And the world would say, it's so unloving to have such an exclusive message. And the angels would declare, this is the most loving announcement I can make. And friends, this is the most loving announcement you and I will make. And I pray that we would find ourselves, much like the shepherds, much like Mary, much like the angels, even walking away from this sermon, from this season, praising and telling others that peace is possible. Glory belongs to God in the highest. It's a saving peace that's given by those who receive this Messiah through repentance and faith. The only way you can receive this peace is by turning from your sin and placing your faith and your trust in the finished work of Christ. This baby would come not not just to show up and then go straight to a cross. No, he would show up and he would live perfectly, earning righteousness. And then he would die the death that was reserved for the worst of criminals. That's not what righteousness deserves. But he goes to the cross bearing what he doesn't deserve in the place of people who do deserve that wrath because of their sin. And so there's an exchange that takes place. All who by faith will turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they can receive the righteousness of Christ and stand before God accepted. And their sin that was deserving of wrath would be taken off of them and placed upon Christ so that the wrath of God would be exhausted. He would be the justifier and the just. You say it all sounds good, but man, if it ends with a savior that's in a tomb, that's just like every other religion. Newsflash, this one doesn't end that way. He's a living God. And he's coming back to gather his people. Non-Christians, friends that are watching, that are confused about where you're at, you're thinking, man, I made a decision at one point, but there's no treasuring, no prizing, no loving Jesus. I just want you to know the invitation this morning is that you can know this peace if you will turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in Christ alone. And if you have questions about that, you want to do that, we want to talk with you about how to do that and what that means. So find anyone in here before you leave. And even if you sleep on it and you think, ah, and you get in your car and you're like, I should have said something, come back next week. Find anyone in here. And then come back the following week and find anyone in here. And I won't keep going, but you get the idea. God gets the glory when sinners run to him for salvation. And in unfathomable mercy, God gets glory and we get peace. Not just peace with God, but also peace, peace with self. And some of you here are so riddled with worry and anxiety, and I just want you to know that there is a peace that's available by leaning into the provision of this Christ and Savior and Lord. And, and then some of you are so uh, alienated, and, and the wake of your life has just broken relationships littered all over. I want you to know that there's a grace for that that you can live at peace with others. And so the angels sing. And we too are meant to stand amazed at what we hear, but also challenged so that our amazement would exceed their amazement. All of this, all of this announcement is drawing attention paradoxically on the night in which he is born. It's drawing attention to his death. This one who is born has been born to die. His life would begin humbly in a feeding trough and it would end in humiliation and shame on a cross. They would find him in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths and yet upon his death he would be covered in a shroud and laid in a tomb. There's something about Christmas that's meant to trouble us. Are you troubled this year? Before it's comforting, it's troubling. Because it confronts us with our sin. We can't ignore it. And neither can God. 
We can't save ourselves. And so he sends a savior. Christmas is disturbing. One author, William Smith, writes, When I look into the manger, I come away shaken as I realize again that he was born to pay the unbearable penalty of my sin. What do you see when you look into the manger? Do you come away shaken? Does the glory of the fact that this baby was born to die Does that inform what you see? And does it inform how you respond? Christmas is comforting beyond all comprehension because God has graciously intervened by sending a Savior to rescue us and to provide peace with God and peace for self and peace with others. The Son of God took on our nature without sin, to die for our sin, to save us from the wrath of God for our sin, and to show that he is more powerful than sin and death by resurrecting on the third day. Friends, there is no greater gift that God could give us than the gift of his son to save us from our peril. It's no wonder, it is no wonder that when it was time to sing, that all heaven broke loose. And a multitude showed up and jumped in saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We simply don't have the luxury of hurrying through this Christmas season as though we are unaware of the greatness that's in our midst. People hustled by Joshua Bell on that January 17th, January 12th day. And it was unfortunate for them. And yet if we hurriedly run by Jesus, it's deadly for us. And so when you look in the manger, I hope you see. I hope you feel. I hope you rejoice. May the God of peace give us peace. And by doing so, may he get the glory. Let's pray. Our holy God, we just ask you to tune our hearts to join the angel's voice in declaring good news, but also to join the angel's voices into singing good news. And the reality about singing is that we don't sing with joy and with integrity that which our hearts do not fill. And so I pray that you would allow us to feel the truth of this gift. And so would you just allow in this moment of silence, allow us to have clarity. Allow us to know how we are to respond. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening.